Uh, my friend uh, Tim isn't here and hopefully won't listen to the podcast, so I can tell this story. Uh, if you've ever been punting, or if you've ever seen people punting, Oxford, Cambridge, other places, you'll know that one of the, the, the reasons it makes it a very good spectator sport is waiting for people to fall in. And uh, the, the, the danger with punting is that as you're pushing with the pole and you're standing on the boat, if the pole gets stuck, or, for that matter, is the wrong side of the bridge as you go under and it gets stuck the wrong side, um, it's, you, just, you watch the person who's in the punting trying to work out whether they can pull themselves back and gradually and gradually the gap widens between them and the pole. And if they're still holding on, as my friend Tim discovered, I remember vividly, uh, you just go in with it. Uh, and uh, I remember him holding onto the side of the punt and basically putting the contents of his pockets um, into the punt as all the tourists who were in the other punts and on the bank took photographs of him. Um, I wanted copies of them, but uh, that should have been good. But this gap that exists um, uh, between uh, a, a sort of a, a stable point, something you know that you want to hold on to and you don't want to let go of, and this moving platform is a great metaphor for all sorts of things in life, but not least for this gap that we find so often happening between what we read on these pages and just the normal everyday stuff of life. And, uh, I mean, what Jez said earlier about the Old Testament, in many ways, is no less true for bits of the New Testament. We just don't notice it so much. That we read these pages, and there is this increasing gap, maybe over the years, between what we're experiencing day by day and what we're reading here. Now, some of that's understandable. Some of it is simply because, um, you know, when we come to church and when we come to the Bible, in some ways, we want to make a gap between what we're experiencing by reading the news or watching the news or in our daily lives and what we're reading here. Sometimes we almost create the gap. We don't want it sort of messing things up. But there is this danger, increasing danger, that what I read here simply feels disconnected. And actually it doesn't help when we read a passage like we're about to read in Ephesians 2, which is just incredibly full of of images, of um, language that that is theological, that is unusual, it's not the sort of thing you would ever say just to somebody over a coffee or somebody sitting in the pub or somebody, um, a a colleague at work, Um, how do we actually make the connection uh, between um, what we're experiencing and what we read here? I think the heart of it is that we sometimes treat these words as too much, simply a list of propositions. A list of things that I need to hear, words, if you like, that I need to hear and understand. And what we miss, and this is the power of this passage we're going to read in Ephesians in a moment, what we miss are the the pictures, the images. And often it's the imagery, the picture language, that helps to connect with our real everyday lives, rather than simply a whole list of things. This passage in Ephesians 2, page 1174, would sustain at least eight or ten sermons on the propositions here. I mean, it's absolutely packed full. It's like the sort of richest of rich Christmas cakes. It is so full of good stuff. It's almost unchewable. Each verse you could sit there and expound. But the problem is for us reading it, we get stuck on that. It's very hard to make any connection between what the vicar's saying at the front or what I'm reading in a book and what's actually going to happen on Monday morning. And as I've been reading this, actually what's grabbed my heart, what's grabbed my mind, are the images And I want to simply, very very simply, um, lift up from the passage three images, three bits of picture language. And I think they are um, absolutely connected with what everyday life is about and what we, we read in the newspapers, what we see in our own hearts, what we long for 
um, in our faith. It's quite a long passage. I'm going to read you the whole of chapter 2. If you remember, this is a a letter written by Paul, we think sitting in a Roman prison cell, uh, written to a bunch of small house churches scattered around Ephesus. Um, None of them will have been any bigger than the the numbers sort of sitting here, somewhere 20 to 30 sitting in somebody's front room. And uh, he wrote this because he wanted them to know the truth of who God was, the truth of who they were before him, the truth of what God had for their lives. So let me read Ephesians 2, uh, and as I say, page 1174. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in that body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners, the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new person out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death our hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Honestly, I defy anyone, unless they already know this passage inside out, I defy anyone, having heard that read through once, to do anything by way of going, ah, well, what he was saying was, I I, I mean, even even as I'm reading it, and I've been studying it this week, I'm thinking, hang on, what was he saying again? It's such a sort of, just a sort of tidal wave of stuff. He he can't help himself. Paul, I I often think if you sat next to Paul at a dinner party, I suspect it would have been quite hard work, because he just, he couldn't do anything but just talk about this stuff, I mean, this is what just tumbled out of him. It was, there was a passion, there was a sort of raw edge to it. He wanted you to know it. 
And the problem for us reading it, and, and maybe even worse, hearing it, is both that there is so much stuff here, that sort of rich fruitcake idea of, well, you can't take too much at a time, but also that an awful lot of it feels very unfamiliar. There's words and concepts and images that simply don't have any connection with, with what we live Monday through Saturday, and not that much more on a Sunday. So these three images that, that for me, I mean, they do know more than skim the surface. As I say, you could preach a whole term on this, but, but I think, for me at least this week, have made a connection with, with what my life has lived this week. I'm going to start at the end, or at least in the second half, um, verses 11 through 22, and the image at the end of verse 14 of the dividing wall of hostility. He says, for he, this is Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if ever there were an image written for today, surely it was this. If you've watched any TV news over the last few weeks, you have seen uh, in country after country what you can only describe as walls of hostility going up. Barbed wire fences being put up overnight. Uh, Walls being put around, you know, train terminals and along uh, borders between countries. This isn't unfamiliar stuff to us. And, And before we think, well, hang on, yeah, yeah, but that's just sort of real life, this is the Bible... That's the whole point. For Paul, he knew what this looked like because he lived in a world that was just like ours. Paul's entire culture, the culture he lived in, was dominated by the division between Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, different parts of the world, different skin colour, different um, uh, languages. It was one of the ironies of the Roman Empire that on the one hand they'd made a huge amount of sort of bringing together. They'd conquered so many different countries, so many different tribes and and religious um, areas and different tongues and yet at the same time had to then hold within it all these divisions. And the society in which Paul grew up and lived and preached and taught was a society that that worked by division. The, The sort of different... Um, status levels, the different hierarchies. You, you couldn't move between them. You were born into one, you stayed there, and you, you died in it. And they were based on class, uh, in, in our terms. They were based on, uh, on money and wealth. They were based on education. They were based on your gender. They were based on your national background. They were based on your religion. He knew what it was to find these divorce, dividing walls of hostility. And in Ephesus itself that he was writing to, there were there's a lot of evidence from the time of real um, hostility between different races, between different religious groups. And then for Paul writing to the church, he had one particular division in mind. One worked example, if you like, that was exercising him, that made him look at the church and think, they've got to learn this stuff. And for him, it was the the division between Jew and Gentile. And what our ears don't pick up when we're listening to it, our eyes don't pick up when we're reading it, is that he, he deliberately uses some quite offensive language that the Jews would have used of the Gentiles. For a Jew to call a Gentile, you uncircumcised man, carries a whole package of saying you're you're dirty and not washed clean by God, you don't belong, you're a foreigner, you're an alien, the language is in there, you don't belong to God's citizenship, you're a citizen of his country, of his people, you don't belong. We look down on you, we're the chosen people. And at the same time, Gentiles looked on Jews in that mirror image. The language used of Jews was no less colourful and no less offensive. 
And within Ephesus, the Jews would have been looked upon with real suspicion. I mean, after all, they weren't following all the... I mean, there were hundreds of temples and and idols in Ephesus, as there were across um, the ancient world. And within the Roman Empire, with Caesars increasingly putting themselves on a pedestal that only God should have, the Jews were being accused of, well, of being traitors, of of being unwilling to follow what was increasingly, not quite at this point, but it was on the way of becoming the national religion, which was Caesar is Lord. Jew and Gentile. And then what Paul sees happening is, as Jew and Gentile become followers of Jesus, all these dividing walls of hostility, these suspicions of one another, the fear of one another, all the stuff we experience and we're we're seeing, if you like, across Europe written out and played out in so many different ways of the way in which people are suspicious of one another, fearful of their own patch being spoiled, fearful of their own culture being lost. He sees this played out in no lesser place than the church itself. And he says of them, there is a dividing wall of hostility that you put up against one another. You Jews who are now followers of Jesus, you Gentiles who are now followers of Jesus, you need to recognise it's there. Paul lived in a world that looked very like ours in so many ways, and in this way in particular, that he recognised in his daily life, as we recognise, that one of the, the most fundamental problems of human life is to get along with people who are different from us. We band together in tribes, we band together in cultures, we really struggle with difference. We're fearful of change. We're fearful of the other. The really interesting thing is what Paul does with them. What he doesn't do is pile a big load of guilt on them. Say, you terrible people, you should be nice to each other. Nor does he simply go down the route of just giving them instruction. You know, be nice to people who are different from you. I mean, yeah, it doesn't work. Uh, you just try harder. Be more generous. Be more pleasant. What he does is go a completely different direction. What Paul does, which he always does, is he dives right into the heart of it. He hates just sort of floating around on the surface, does Paul. He loves to get to the real meat, the real heart of it. And what he says is, if you want to understand the very heart of the problem of how uh, human society is dysfunctional, you have to understand the problem of the human heart. And by understanding the problem of the human heart, it's not simply that we find a solution, sort of a magic wand... It's that as human beings, we will see the world differently because we will see ourselves differently. Now, even though we started halfway through the passage, we get a taste of it um, in verse 17. Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Those who were far away would have been seen as the Gentiles, from a Jewish perspective. You who were far near, those who were near would be seen as the Jews. And verse 18, he says, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. In other words, the, the, the core of getting past this dividing wall, the core of us being able to live a different way, is to understand ourselves and others as on an absolutely level playing field. Not over and above somebody else, not better than somebody else, not slightly closer to God than somebody else but starting in the same place. And that's what takes us back to the second image, which is at the beginning of our passage, in verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, or literally in which you used to walk. Um, I hope you won't find this disrespectful um, or a bit fanciful, but I reckon that if Paul were writing today, 
he'd have actually said, as for you, you were zombies. Long before his time, uh, he, he, he got why the image of the walking dead was a fantastically rich one. So what he's saying, as for you, you were dead, walking in your transgressions and sins. Now, I, I have to say, I'm not a great... Um, uh, either fan of or experienced in the zombie genre. I'm far too much of a coward to watch such things. But the fact is that, that the core idea is that there is movement and that there is action uh, and there is activity, but there's no life. There's no choice-making. There's no real heart. And there is a sense of inevitability. Zombies are going to do what zombies are going to do. There is a walking in a way. And you, everybody's the same. You can have a you know, university professor next to somebody who's never been to school. You can have somebody who, who used to be a millionaire next to a down and out. And actually, uh, if you're the walking dead, you're the walking dead. You're just going to do what you're going to do. And this is the image that Paul picks. He is as brutal as he can be. He simply says, honestly and truly, how can you possibly think of yourself above, or for that matter, below anyone else? Because you were, without God, simply the walking dead. You were dead. And, and what Paul is trying to... I mean, he's really trying to be as shocking as possible. He's basically saying, well, you know, one dead body is pretty much the same as another dead body. They can pretty much do the same stuff. There is no difference. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time. We were all zombies. It's just how it is. That is human life without the life of God is effectively the walking dead. That's very uncomfortable language. It's not how we want to be. It's not what we aspire to be. It's not who we think of ourselves as. And yet, what Paul does here is put his finger on what in our hearts we know is true of us without God. And and if you want a longer exposition, let's go and read Romans 7, where Paul writes about his own life. And what Paul writes there, and what we know is true of us, is it doesn't matter how hard we try. And we try so hard in our better moments we know that there is something in us that is dead to the good life of God. There is something in us that is zombie-like. We just trudge on. And even at the time that we're thinking, this is not the way I want to live, we just live it anyway. You know, we joke about New Year's resolutions and pretty much every year we'd say, you know, how long did yours last? And those are tiny little things. And we've said many times to one another, you know, if we could pick one 24-hour period in our lives... So, right, just for that 24-hour period, in the whole of my how many year life I'm going to have, in that 24-hour period, I am going to think, feel, speak, do, be perfectly the man or woman that God made me to be. We know, I mean, it's laughable to even dream of it. Because, says Paul, without God's life, we're the walking dead. We just walk in our transgressions and sins. But... Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, mercy is simply not treating us as we do deserve, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. He's he's really piling it on here. He's saying, look, don't imagine that God made you alive when you'd shown a few signs of, you know, little twitching sort of over here and God says, ah, there's a bit of life there, well, now, the point is, while you were still dead, de- you know, there's a Monty Python sketch springs to mind, you know, you're just dead. You've got nothing to offer. 
Uh, in children's groups today, um, this morning and this afternoon, we're, we're looking at the story of the prodigal son. And Jesus tells the story to uh, make, if you like, a slightly less extreme version of the same point. He says, while the son, the, old, uh, the younger son who'd gone off and completely blown it, who'd blown his relationship with his dad, who'd blown his inheritance, he'd blown his, his, um, his identity and his future. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and ran towards him. And Paul makes an even more extreme point. While we were still dead, not even turning around and starting to come back, but just dead, God made us alive in Christ. It is by grace, end of verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Grace is simply God acting when we couldn't. Grace is simply God making the first move. God, grace is simply God giving life to that which is dead. Now, on one level, that's not terribly difficult. It's what God has been doing since the beginning of time. Our very life is given to us out of the clay is the picture language of Genesis. This, this raw stuff that has no life in it, God breathes life. And in Jesus, there is this recreation into to our dead bodies before God, our dead transgression, our, our, our walking zombies. God breathes new life. So how can we possibly look down on anybody else? How can we possibly treat people as different from us in the sense of lower than us, or for that matter, higher than us? We are all in the same place before God. All of us dead. All of us needing to receive the gift of life. For it is by grace all of us are offered the gift of being saved. The image of the dividing wall of hostility, which speaks absolutely to the, the, the big issue of our age, if you like, how can difference live together? The image of the, the walking dead, which speaks to the problem of the human heart, which is somehow we think we have something more to offer God, that somehow God responds to us, whereas it's all the other way around. But there is a final image, just briefly. And it's the image that we've got to grab hold of because actually, on the face of it, this language still makes no sense. You would be absolutely forgiven for sitting there thinking, well, Richard, this is just yet more religious language because actually you say to me, you've got the gift of God's life. But I still live as the walking dead. This part of my life, that part of my life, this part of my life, of here, I'm still the zombie that does what I don't want to do. Why is it no different? And it's here in the image of the throne of Jesus. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. It's a lovely word. In his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is recognising here is this gift of life in us will not be fully seen until the life of the world to come, in order that in the coming ages he might show. But it is so certain that he can speak of it as if it's already happened. Verse 6, he has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Paul isn't stupid. He knows that we're still on the earth. Paul was sitting in a dirty, dark, smelly, rat-infested Roman um, prison cell. He didn't imagine he was in heaven already. But he was so certain of what was to come, he was able to say, it's already happened, but I know, it's still to come. 
if you are starving hungry, properly, properly hungry, if you've had to fast for some sort of medical procedure, you'll probably the closest you will come to being really, really thoroughly just needing food. And we know that the first bite doesn't do it. And the second bite doesn't do it. We don't suddenly feel, I'm satisfied, I've got all the food I need. But we also know that that first bite is a taste of what's to come. And Paul is saying, we have a taste of the new life of Christ. It's real. It's, it's as real as the food we put in our mouth. That real new life of Christ. We taste it, it begins to do some good, but we need to go on eating it. And one day we will be fully satisfied, fully made alive, fully transformed. And then just to make sure we've got it, just in case we slip back, as we so often do, into thinking it really is about us. Now God saved me, it's up to me and I've got to prove myself. I love this, verse 8, 9 and 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, that's simply the hands that take hold of grace. And it's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship. Literally his masterpieces, it's a portrait painting word, it's a beautiful, fantastic masterpiece of a painting that's been made with absolute care and attention to detail and real joy created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Even the good that I do is a gift. Even those little bits of my life where the life of God is making a difference, even that is gift so that no one can boast. That speaks to me of of Monday, of what we're going to see on the news of the real world in which we live, of these intractable problems that we nobody has a magic wand to solve, of my own fears of difference, of my own fears of what I like and where I live and, and the people I get on with being changed. It speaks to my heart where I fear that I've got to try harder and harder and harder to make God okay with me. Where I... I'm tempted to look down on others or, for that matter, to put myself at the bottom of the heap and think, well, I'm no good for anything. It speaks to the reality that without God, I am a zombie. The walking dead, walking in my transgressions and sins, but in Christ, I'm made alive. Why? Well, it all comes back to what we were celebrating in communion. That in his death on the cross, Christ took my death, my sin, and dealt with it. And in rising to new life, he gave me a taste of the life of the world to come that will transform me. And if we will let it, through us can transform the world in which we live.